Miles, it is a very exciting day. Episode one of the world's only Rams podcast. We are so excited to be here. Um, This Rams team is so freaking exciting, man. Another good win by the Rams this week. Miles, how you doing? I could not be more excited. Tristan, Sean McVay has done it again. We have clinched a playoff spot here at the World's Only Rams podcast. A lot of people thought at the beginning of the year, including myself, that this Rams team was headed nowhere for the second straight year. It was an absolute masterclass in late round drafting, the personal development touch by Sean McVay. It's a team you can really get behind and really feel proud of. And now I'm wondering who we're going to play in the playoffs. I think we could sneak a playoff win here. The Rams are dangerous. Yeah, no, th- these guys are so good, and I mean, it's just it's a really fun community to be a part of. I think that's what I've enjoyed this week is just just the immense love and support within Rams Nation or Rams, whatever you want to call it. I don't know what they call it yet. I don't know what we call it. We're, we're on herd. a mountain together. The, yeah, the herd, the mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What just being a part of this herd and jumping? I imagine that we're kind of the sort of Rams that that climb the mountains, you know, like you're saying. So like, we're just kind of jumping from tiny rock cliff to rock cliff. We have these tiny little hooves that are very deft at, at getting the, the cracks and crevices. We're kind of the, the Alex Honnell of, um, of Rams. You know, we, we just, we're graceful yet. We have this be- these beautiful horns. I mean, massive, powerful horns. And I, I love the imagery. Um, this is going to be great, man. I, Am I missing anything? I think we're just, we're set. We're set. And it's really good that we took care of business earlier this season against some some division opponents that weren't quite as focused on getting to the playoffs as we were in Ram- on the mountain, in the herd. Uh, those wins really helped us secure this 9-7 and seven record right now so that we are definitely in the playoffs. And some of those other teams are could be on the outside looking in uh, yeah. for playoff time. Um, I'm trying to think what was, oh, there were two games that really helped our chances. And man, I feel like we just, we kind of snuck by the second time we played. There's a lot of wins. It's hard to keep track of all of them. We, we do have a winning record when we were kind of predicted to be a four and 13 type team. You know, do they, do they have a beautiful kind of he- blue hue to their, to their jerseys? A like lot of wins, a lot. There could have been blue teams in there. Oh, feathers! I'm, I'm that's right. Feathers. That's right. It was way back in week one. We absolutely blew out a team called the Seattle Seahawks. That's right. That's right. That's right. And then, then we got another was... win. Really snuck by them. They really kind of let yeah. us hang around in the game, and we clinched it in about week ten or so to that's really it. lock up, lock up some di- important divisional tiebreakers. Um, this is really knocking the cobwebs off, Miles. Um, the I got Everett some, Seahawks. I got some bad news. Uh, well, I mean, maybe not bad news, but... The Enumclaw Seahawks. A splash of cold water to both of our faces. We're not on the world's only Rams podcast. This is the world's only Seahawks podcast. We, oh, we, gosh. You're right. We're Shoot. in a different you're dimension right. there right. for a second. Oh. Okay, um, let's... Okay, let me just look at my notes again. Oh, I'm <clears throat> this is not episode one. Episode 16 of the world's only Seahawks podcast. Week 17 of the NFL schedule. We laid another egg, unfortunately, Miles. This 
first of all, how are you, my friend? Let, this is how we should start it. Let's just start with some brevity, some some happiness. How are you doing? Happy New Year. First of all, Happy New Year. It is, we are coming to the people Monday, January 1st. We are, we are only 12 hours, 11 hours into this new year. How are you doing? Tristan, it's great to be with you. 11 hours into the new year, and I've spent 10 of them grinding tape of Seahawks versus Steelers. What a great That's way it. to start it off. That's it. That's it. What have I done so far this year? Talk Seahawks football. Um, this was a heartbreaker, man. This was a tough one. This is not, I mean, you know, we start off in jest with the Only Rams podcast, but the reason that came to mind is just because, I mean, you know, I, I have, I know some people in my life that like to, you know, jump to the hot teams and, um, you know, the, the the siren call of of success the siren call of like oh yeah here we go look <laughs> jump on this bandwagon this would be fun um you know the, it, this was a tough one to swallow this is the sort of game that makes you kind of look at the other the other front yards and seeing if how how green their grass is and <clears throat> unfortunately it seems as though a lot of the grass is is a little greener than the Seahawks currently um it's tough when you can't stop the run, Miles. I mean, it, that is, it, it's a tough game to watch. It was, the word I used to you yesterday was demoralizing. That's the word I got. I mean, that's just, we could stop the podcast right there as far as I'm concerned. This was a demoralizing loss when you cannot stop the run. Uh, yeah, it didn't actually take uh, that season of an NFL scout to see that the Seahawks were really having trouble with it. Uh in fact, I don't know if you saw the statistic from Brady Henderson, Seahawks guy for ESPN. ESPN has been tracking rushing yards after contact since 2009. And the Steelers in this game, uh, 132 yards after initial contact, which is the second most in that entire time span, which is like thousands of games. Uh, so, yeah, it, it really was uh that, that was tough to watch. You, you did want me to talk you off the ledge. I had kind of a trivia question. Uh, I guess it could be a trivia question to show that. Uh, and I was, th I was thinking about Devin Witherspoon and how it's his rookie year. And it's been such a great rookie year. And uh, some other players in the secondary have, have been having a really tough year. But just how quickly it can change with a young star in the secondary like Spoon. So Earl Thomas was drafted in 2010. Pete Carroll's first year. Pete and John's first ever draft pick in the first round, 2010. I was shocked to discover, do you know who the other starting safety alongside Earl was in his rookie year? It It, it is a name that uh, I that is very recognizable to an NFL fan, but I'll be honest, I did not, I was not aware that this player was ever a Seahawk. And if I the do. internet is up to date, this, this man is today a resident of Woodenville and enjoying yes. some very pleasant wine over there. One of the great safeties of all time. Patriots great. Am I correct? You're the, correct. Yes. Lawyer Malloy. Um, Lawyer Malloy there. in his yeah. late 30s was starting opposite Earl Thomas. And I was looking back at the connection. Lawyer actually played for Pete during Pete's very short run as the Patriots head coach. So it's kind of a reunion there. And uh, Malloy grew up in Tacoma. But anyway, I, I don't even remember Malloy being a Seahawk. To be honest, unfortunately, uh, 
And never mind, you don't think of him coming in the same era as Earl. With Earl, yeah. you think of Cam, you think of you think of you know the Lob yeah. brothers. So it is. I w- I was kind of thinking like, hey, this can all change really fast, and it could be a moment where it's like, do you know Devin Witherspoon played on the same team as Jamal Adams? Like, did you know that? Can you believe that those guys don't feel like they're in the same era at all? Because uh, you had a whole bunch of people coming in those next couple draft classes, and just a few short years later. Seahawks are a locked-in Super Bowl team. It's, yeah, you know what? That's a really good perspective. And in some ways, it, it is, in this moment, it's nice to remember a guy like Lawyer Malloy and and how important some of those different positions are. Because, um, I mean, it's, it's actually ironic you bring up Lawyer in that I distinctly remember that year he was an enforcer for us and he was kind of Cam Chancellor light, um, with all due respect to Lawyer. I mean, I would never say that. In fact, lawyer, if you hear that. <laughs> well, he was 37 at the time. So to, to be just a starting secondary player in your late 30s like that, and uh, you know, is is crazy. So, so yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I just had like the fear of God put in me, though, when I just imagined saying that to Lawyer Malloy, who is one of the great safeties of all time and was a great Seahawk for in his short tenure um, and brought the boom. And the reason I bring irony up is, he he was great against stopping the run. I mean, he really did help that team, especially that first year. Earl was all over the place. He was a whirling dervish out there. And to have Lawyer as kind of a steady Eddie presence, you know, on that on that secondary was great. And then if you think about it, so I mean, think about hierarchy and think about um passing down knowledge from one generation to another. Who's sitting on the bench? What fifth round pick? is sitting on the bench watching these two play. Cam Chancellor was the fifth round pick of that draft, I believe. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Cam was picked in the same draft class as Earl. Um, yes, just you're in right. The, fifth round. Term, yeah. term, the next, the, I, was, I was writing that. The 2011 okay, draft class, you bring in <laughs> KJ Wright, Richard Sherman, Byron Maxwell, and Malcolm Smith, all in 2011. So yeah, that means Cam would have been... Uh, in in the, the ten pick, yeah. So so you imagine, and and it, it does. You know, you think about these young players have to learn from someone. Earl was there learning on the field with Lawyer, and Lawyer was teaching him how to be a pro. Cam was on the bench watching Lawyer, and Lawyer was teaching him how to be a pro. And I'm now that is a statement I have no problem saying. I'm sure Cam would be shaking his head, yes, like yeah, man. I mean, I'm watching one of the great enforcers out there. And then obviously Cam Chancellor becomes, you know, maybe the greatest Seahawk, you know, just like that, you know, th- that next year he comes into his own. Um, so to your point, you know, this is still a team in transition. I- I've said to many people, I say to my daughter, expectation is the thief of joy. And and, and I feel as though in some ways that's kind of the the interesting give and take of a football season because expectations rise, they fall. And, and there was a moment this year where expectations were getting pretty high for this team. And to be at this place now hurts extra, but only because those expectations really got there. We, we could see what we thought this team was becoming. Um, crazy stat that the broadcast showed that the first five games of the season, the Seahawks were the best run defending team in the league. And then the last five games were the worst run defending game in uh, run defending team in the league. It's it's like 
it's shocking to to like just look at that and to think that the main players up front really haven't changed. Well, um, wait, well, wait. They kind of sorry to interrupt, but yeah. we did have Uchenna, I was looking up Uchenna because he went. He had a season-ending injury in the sixth game, and looking back at it, I do. Whoa. I, I think that was a bigger deal than we gave it credit for, I, and I, I look forward to seeing him play next year because I do think he was more important to that run defense than we gave him credit for. The 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 stat on Nwosu I had so that he played in the first six games, and if you sort the Seahawks games by the amount of rushing yards allowed, like and then you split like then there's like they played sixteen games, so the best half is like their best eight games, and the worst half is their worst eight games. All of Uchenna's games earned that best half. So Interesting. Like, yeah. So it, it was so I, I'm really looking forward to I hope he gets healthy and is back in there next year because yeah, I th- I think he I looking back at it, his I think his absence has hurt the team a lot deeper than I knew he was an important player, but I, I'm really looking forward to seeing how he plays the run next year because because I I think that that hurt a lot more than than I gave it credit for, at least. Yeah, well, that's interesting. And then, yeah, you think about bringing Leonard Williams in, who it seems as though is playing great. I mean, that that's what's maybe extra difficult about the way the Seahawks have played against the run, is if I told you, like, hey, do you like Jaron Reed? You'd say, yeah. yeah do you yeah. like Leonard Williams? Yeah. Do you like Draymond Jones? Yeah. Do you like Boye Mafe? Yeah. Do you like Jordan Brooks? Yeah. Like, hey, we all know Bobby's getting older. Like, that, it is what it is. Um, Daryl Taylor certainly is a liability against the run. There's just, there's no doubt about that. He's a, he's a pass rushing end. He's, he's just not built to, to stop the run the way we, we need him to. Um, so it's, it's very interesting to think like there's a lot of players on that front line that are playing the way that you would want them to. One thing I'll, I'll just bring up now as we're talking about it, um, we'll, we'll hear about a little bit in snap counts, but the thing that stood out to me the most when I looked at snap counts, so snap counts always look at rookies, you know, what do we get from the rookies? And then D-line. If you're, I don't know if you're looking at my numbers right now, um, but the, the thing that really stood out to me, Leonard Williams, Jaron Reed, Boye Mafe all played 90 percent of the snaps and that like that's a recipe for disaster right I mean you're asking think about asking the and by the way that's 71 snaps it was the total number a for the Steelers number. yeah I was uh, yeah but, a huge number so, of snaps so yeah, so, yeah 90 percent of 71 huge number and just imagine asking to do like Jaron and Leonard Williams are both closer to 300 pounds than 200 pounds to ask someone of that size hey be out there for 90 percent of the snaps it's untenable it just it doesn't work and you know obviously now we couldn't stop the run at the beginning of the game either so I, I don't know how big of a difference it made but clearly towards the end of the game it's like you're whooped I mean you just you're you're tired you're, you're not going to be able to stop it and um when you can't <clears throat> it's a it's a special version of being demoralized when you can't stop the run like there's a lot of different ways to lose a football game not being able to stop the run is it's it's its own version of hell when when you're a fan watching your team not being able to do this one thing it's like i don't even know what the is the equivalent 
in baseball, maybe if you like your your entire pitching staff just has a day where like they just they can't locate their fastballs and like you're just throwing ball after ball after ball and you're like, yeah, this like we, we can't win this game. Like if we can't throw a strike, we cannot win baseball games. I, I don't know if that's a good analogy or not, but I mean, just this idea, if you can't stop the run, you can't do anything in football. Uh I have no notes for the Seahawks offense. I thought the Seahawks offense played an amazing game. I don't know if we're really going to get to that, though. But as you're saying, really tough stopping the run. Seahawks offense was significantly better in yards per play. 7.5 yards per play to 6.6 yards per play. But the Steelers just were able to get, get those positive runs every time. So I think that's what's so demoralizing about it is you're – your chance at winning is getting chipped away like 1% at a time, you know, and there's really no like 10%. There weren't, there weren't really any huge moments, but it, it just kind of like, it just keeps on going, keeps on going. And yeah, Steelers had 71 offensive plays against only 49 for the Seahawks. So when those D line guys are out there for 90%, that means they're out there for more snap, way more snaps than if a Steelers defensive lineman was out there for 100% of their snaps, you know, um, yeah, yeah. It was <laughs> yeah, jeez. It's it's hard, man. It's there there's not much more to say. I mean, it's funny. I listened to Pete's press conference. My Pete Nugget today even is is pretty sparse cuz you know, we only have one press conference to go after. Um I suppose Brock and Salk's podcast maybe they're they're releasing their episode right about now, but um it's when you even the questions that Pete's answering and, and the way he's answering it, it's like, there's not much you can say. It's like, yeah, like we couldn't tackle and we like our run fit sucked and, and that's all there is to it. I mean, and I, you know, who knows who's to blame most. I don't know. Pete specifically said in his press conference, we threw everything we had at him. Like all of our different run stopping concepts were, were deployed and none of them worked. So it's not even like, well, we, you know, we just tried to do it this one way and we were being stubborn the entire game. It's like, here's the whole playbook. Here's all of our run defense. Like, let's, oh, let's try this one. Okay, let's try that one. And I mean, I've, I've watched a handful of Steelers games. I've followed Najee Harris fairly closely this year. Um, <clears throat> I, I hate to bring up fantasy football at all, but I have Jaron Warren on my team, uh, Jalen Warren, excuse me. And and I mentioned that only to say, like, I've followed both of these running back stats throughout the year. Najee Harris has not had a good year. Like, Najee Harris, when you watch him play week in and week out, you watch him. He is slow to the line. He gets tackled for loss a ton. He is a very unimpressive back. I mean, just that's all there is to it. To watch Najee Harris, like, run all over us it was, I mean... <laughs> He's not doing that to other teams. I mean, this he's been in the league for a while. This is only his fifth game over 100 yards. You know, they they put that stat up like, hey, it's his fifth game. It's like, like this isn't his rookie year. Like, he's he was a first-round draft pick. Like, that's – he's behind. My jaw dropped at that one. Yeah, that was – yeah, five was a very low number, and he was cruising past 100 yards quite easily in this game. And without the help of, like, a huge 60, 70-yarder, you know, it was a, a real <laughs> – Lunch Pound pail, one hundred yard game that yeah just chipped away the entire time. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was rough. And I mean, you know, listening to Pete after the game, he, he didn't. It was one of those like he didn't have any answers, and he didn't really have anything great to say except 
yeah, we didn't tackle. Yeah, we didn't, you know, we thought we could do it in this game and we just couldn't. Um, which, you know, suddenly, you know, we 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 bring up the Rams clinching, suddenly this changes our whole playoff picture just like that, right? I mean, we went from, I believe, about 70% chance to make the playoffs, which you and I were making fun of these numbers last week for good reason, right? Because what do these numbers mean? Well, it means, yeah, if you win these games, your playoff odds are going to go up. You go from 70 to 30. And if, I, if I've read the standings correctly, I believe we need the Bears to beat the Packers. We need to win, and we need the Bears to beat the Packers, which... It seems like a tall order, like to, to ask the Bears to like our hopes for the playoffs rest on the, the shoulders of the Bears. That's not great. Well, the Bears are quite close to um, matching the Seahawks in the standings. right now. It's, yeah, they, they're finishing a lot closer than you would have thought at week uh, eight or so. Uh, yeah, it, it's hard to be mad at the defensive playbook because it's like, well, the guys were there. To uh, to stop things, it just didn't happen, and I think that's that's what hurt. I think because you got the sense that the, especially the defense, it felt like they weren't playing with an awareness of the stakes of the game. This felt like maybe some week five action. It's like, hey, this is week seventeen, and and yeah, you're this, you you're alive to win the Super Bowl. I mean, I know it's unlikely, but it's like, hey. Until you're eliminated, you are alive to win the Super Bowl, you know? And it just wasn't – because it felt like you, – you just didn't feel the desire to win, which I, I think is maybe what – that's what maybe stops Pete in his tracks more because that 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 – you know, I've been listening to KJ Wright a lot in his podcast, and, and he's very sensitive – when it comes to talking about people's jobs, which I really respect, which I yep. haven't really thought of before, but it does. You did. With that lack of urgency is kind of like, okay, if you can't get up for this game, I don't know if, what game can you get up for, you know? Uh, and it, it made me feel like a lot of personnel changes were, I, I it felt like, okay, this really locked in that this, this is going to be a busy off season transaction wise. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems as though you need to, and I think you're right. I think having Chenna back is huge um, for that run defense. But but then again, you can't just rely on one player, right? Because, I mean, injuries happen. So there has to be something different happening scheme-wise, I guess, um, maybe just depth-wise so that you have enough people to do that fundamental job, Um because, I mean, you know, players go down, people people get hurt. I mean, we were watching this game, Nick Bosa, right? Like, looked like he got hurt pretty bad. He was able to come back into the game. But if, you know, if the entire Steelers' life is T. dependent... Watt. I'm sorry, TJ Watt, my bad. They all, um, they I know all, what you mean, though. They kind of blend together. They, they all... Yeah, like the Watt brothers and the and the Bosa brothers. It's like, <laughs> they're all just, like, they destroy football games. It's like, they all do the exact same thing. Yes, TJ Watt. Um, although I would take TJ Watt or Nick Bosa, <laughs> either one, like, I feel like they're equally destructive as defenders. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's like if one of those guys goes down or, or would the Steelers be like, yeah, well, no, we just can't do this one fundamental part of the game. Like you have to be able to, even if you have personnel issues, like do that, like do that fundamental piece of, of stopping the run. So it'll be interesting hearing from Pete after he's reviewed the film, like what, 
what went wrong and, and how they fix this. Um, but obviously there's only one game left, right? I mean, it's kind of like, how do we fix this for the last game of the season against a Cardinals team that, you know, suddenly looked pretty great against the Eagles, which is kind of crazy. Like the, the Eagles did some, or the, the, the Cardinals did some damage in Arizona. Actually, no, that was in Philly. That was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, during the commercial breaks in this game, as the missed tackles were happening, I, w- I was looking up a bunch of missed tackle stats. So this is everything I'm about to say is before this game, before taking into account this game. So missing tackles did seem to be a unique weakness of the Seahawks defense. Uh, pro, fo- uh, pro football reference does track missed tackles. They started tracking in like 2018. So it's relatively new. Heading into this game, Hawks 28th in the league in missed tackles. Or or like, so like fifth most. Or fourth most. Fifth most, sorry. Seahawks very close to the bottom in terms of like missing tackles more often than just about any other team in the league. But what's interesting, court percentage of dropbacks where the quarterback gets pressure, Seahawks 8th best. So the, the pass rush is way above average. They're heading into elite territory. So that's a very bizarre combo for a defense to have I felt of like yeah we're we're pressuring the quarterback all the time oh completing tackles yeah we're we're really we're really doing a poor job at that and then um so pro football reference also tracks missed tackle percentage so like the opportunity for an individual player to have tackles how often are they missing that opportunity and so they're tracking so 473 defenders across the league hit their qualifications. So it's like 14 players per team. So they're tracking just about every defender. And I think it's important not to necessarily have players be like elite, but I think you want players in the top half of the league in in that stat. Yep. So out of 473, here's some rankings (laughs) from, from, from the Seahawks. Jamal Adams, 446. Reek Woolen, 430. Jaron Reed, 422. Witherspoon, 409. A lot of those were early in the year. I did want to look out for Witherspoon. And Quandre Diggs, 374. So that's about half your defensive players. That's your two highest paid defensive players in Adams and Diggs uh, being in like the bottom quarter of the league in missed tackle percentage. On the other hand, we have uh, Draymond Jones, 114. Boye Mafe, 98. Michael Jackson, 94, Bobby Wagner, 90. So it's like, okay, you, you do have a good chunk of your defenders are, are well above average at this, which, which is positive. But I think you need to aspire to have all your guys above average. That, that's about half the defensive starters that are in the bottom quarter of this. And it it just really got – I think it really hurt to have Adams and Diggs down there because the Seahawks have invested so much in safety. So Hawks are, are no, the number one team in the league in terms of the percentage of their salary cap that's invested in safety. And it's like, so it's 12% of their cap is at safety. Diggs is number five in the league overall, and Adams is number seven. So like the eighth most team in safety investment is at 6%, and the Hawks are at 12. So the Hawks are Whoa. like off the charts. And I think, unfortunately, it's like, I kind of think in general, you don't want to be that high on any position in the NFL. I think you kind of want to be balanced. So, because I think if you get that high at any one position, something else is going to end up being a weakness. But yep. um, 
Yeah, top five teams in safety investment, Seahawks, Cardinals, Broncos, Bears, and Bills. Those aren't like the elite defenses in the league. I'm not sure if investing that much in safety is really the way forward. And then then to get that many missed tackles from your two highest paid guys really felt like it was just it was just hurting. Yeah, I, I it kind of felt to me like it it started from the back a little bit, which I'm not sure if that's accurate if you were to look at the tape. But that's what I was writing down during the game. Just look at. <laughs> I th- I think those numbers are really interesting, and yeah, to your point, it's it's hard to know the the I guess the causation or whatever where this stems from because obviously safety is a very dependent position right so i mean if the guys up front aren't doing what they're supposed to do how many of those missed tackles is quandre having to clean other people's mistakes up right he's the safety so he's he's the last line of defense so how often is he having to come up and be like oh crap draymond didn't get his tackles no i have to try to you know fix this in the back end that's a great point and and now there's a guy in space so i that's but i mean it's really interesting that's where it's like we would need I feel like we would need like the the pros to like really dig it in with us like cuz cuz it is interesting and I do think it's telling like again when when you think about these positions that are dependent on other positions it makes sense to have your foundational positions a little higher paid right like that's I think why we both really like the Leonard Williams trade because those guys help everyone else look better the, having a good defensive line helps everybody else um. Yeah, but it's fascinating to think about Jamal and Quandry on the back end of that. And then, in all seriousness, and and you know, we'll see what happens with Jamal. And I, I don't want to be flipping about anybody's health ever. Um, but like, you know, have we seen Jamal Adams his last you know game as a Seahawk? Is that behind him? You know, like, are are we are we ever going to see him play as a Seahawk again? I believe. He, there's, he has no more money guaranteed in his contract. So I think the Seahawks can walk away from Jamal with a dead money hit, but not necessarily, you know, actually having to pay anything. So, um, so you know, there's some cap implications with Jamal, but, you know, you just kind of wonder, are, is this now the time to kind of move on from the Jamal Adams experiment? Um, you know, who knows? And I mean, Pete, he did mention on the press conference, like, you know, he was really leaning into... Jamal just isn't able to run the way he wants to run. And like, you know, this is just an injury related thing that, you know, we had to put him on IR. Um, I don't know if that's completely accurate or not. Pete's never going to throw anybody under the bus, which is a great thing about Pete. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough, man. It, it It's tough seeing those numbers. Uh, I'm impressed that Bobby is actually above average. Like I think, I don't know. I've pointed to Bobby a lot as like, with all due respect, like he's he's definitely lost a step. But I mean, it's crazy that he's still, you know, tackling at that percentage and like at that clip. Yeah, you're making me wonder now if just like secondary players are naturally in the bottom half. But I, I am looking at Michael Jackson's at, at 94th overall, yeah. like in, yeah. in that really. And then I was looking at I was looking at Kyle Hamilton of the Ravens, who uh, really. I mean, he was having an elite time. The He's in his second year with the Ravens after being drafted in the first round in 2022. He's been quietly elite the whole time and then very loudly elite with that beat down of the 49ers on Christmas night. It's I, If I'm recalling correctly, his missed tackle percentage was around like 
about half, a, a little more than half of like Jamal Adams missed tackle percentage on this year. So yeah. I think, yeah, it, no. I think it can be, I think it, it definitely would be harder for a secondary player to be that, to be like among all defensive positions, but there's room for improvement. Oh, also it's like, okay, with the Seahawks being 28th in the league in total missed tackles, the number one team, which kind of hurts is the, uh, and they had an extra game played was uh, the Cowboys because their Saturday stats were, were oh. in it as I was looking at it yesterday. They have about half the total missed tackles on the year, led by our old friend Dan Quinn. You know, that's, that, so, that's where that's it's so like, interesting. Ah, Dan, yeah. you know. Yeah, he's good. He's good. And and he has those players playing at a high clip. Um, no, I mean, it, it's funny, you know, we can get into all the different stats, but I, I feel like what this conversation is is shining the light on is like the fundamentals of football are very simple. You have to be able to stop the run and you have to be able to tackle. And like, I mean, really, it sounds almost silly, but that that's what football is. I mean, it's it's a very simple game when you boil it down to its most like basic components. Now, you know, to do that, you have to put players in position to do it. And there's complex offenses you're going against all that stuff. Um, but if you can't do some of those fundamental things, you know, and, and we, we definitely saw some whiffs, you know, some guys that were in position that just could not complete the tackle, um, guys getting washed in the offensive line, you know, just, you know, or the, rather the Steelers offensive line, just washing us off the ball. Um, you know, when, when that happens, you're going to, you're going to have issues. And I would like to see, I've, I've been listening to, um, Maddie Barnes podcast more and more the, the Seahawks overload podcast. And he's been bringing up almost your exact point, which is we need more guys on the end of the line. So, you know, Chenna's position that are in that like 260 pound range, like we need larger, just bigger disruptive guys that can hold up against the run versus like, say a guy like Daryl Taylor, who's like 240, right? And he's, he's just not stout enough and big enough to stop the run. I was hoping Frank Clark would be that for us. I was hoping that maybe, hey, Frank might not be able to get to the passer the same way, but can he hold up against the run? Can he just, you know, kind of do that fundamental thing, which obviously he, it didn't seem like he was able to do. Um and frankly, I you know, if you look at what happened with Boye Mafe this last year, I think it's reasonable to expect that Derek Hall will take a big step next year. Like maybe not a Mafe level step, but like Derek Hall could be a he has the body for it, right? Like he has that Chenna Nuoso, um, uh, Boye Mafe type body, that two sixty type frame, where it seems like he should be able to establish the edge for us and like hold up. So you know, I, I think there's there's room for hope, but. Not in this game. This game was just just carnage. And and all that, all of that. And they were still in it at the very end. And like we could have we could be sitting here being like, holy moly, we like we got out of this one by the skin of our teeth. Like they beat us in every way. But Gino drove down that final drive and got a touchdown and we were able to, you know, win by three points or something like that. So it's it's kind of funny to think about. You know that last fumble, that 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 sack fumble was was pretty costly. That was costly, and it made me think. Even Tom Brady in his Super Bowls and engineering last minute drives, even he got strip sacked uh, yep. in that one against the Eagles. Even Tom Brady in the Super Bowl can't convert a last minute drive one hundred percent of the time. And if you look at the last three games, it's like, yeah, we hit we hit that last 
fourth quarter drive in two out of the three games, that's as good as it's going to get. Like yeah. it, things are just going to happen like that. I did want to say, um, I felt like Julian Love, well, just again, I thought just about everybody on the offense played an excellent game today. So we'll, we'll but enough, enough of that. <laughs> Uh, I did feel, though, like Julian Love was playing an excellent game defensively. And I thought, um, I know I wrote this down here, but it doesn't seem like that great of a point now. But one of the Julian Love plays was he he forces a fumble on George Pickens in the first half that George Pickens has to thank his lucky stars. This thing just randomly bounced harmlessly out of bounds. That thing just takes a bit of a weirder bounce. That's another fumble. And in the first quarter, Deontay Johnson of the Steelers has one. I mean, we kind of moved past it and it ended up not mattering. One of the most bizarre plays I have ever seen where as he's falling out of bounds, he somehow conspires to fling the ball back into Michael Jackson's hands of the Seahawks. And he got saved by his own toe being out of bounds. I mean, that was one of the most bizarre plays ever couple of snaps that uh, Mason Rudolph had had trouble handling. I mean, it was really close to being a complete turnover fest and this game looking a lot different. I mean, it ultimately doesn't matter, but I just... I, I That was the experience of watching the first half, of going like, wow, Steelers are really getting lucky with some some harmless-looking bounces here. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and I mean, those are... 100 you're 100 percent right those those turnovers are game-changing plays and you know this was such a time of possession game right i mean you just imagine we get a few first downs if all we do on both of those turnovers is just control the ball a little bit more and get a few first downs and keep our defense off the field and now suddenly you know let's live in a fantasy world where instead of the Steelers running 71 plays, they run 60 or 55 plays. Like that's, that's massive, right? I mean, those last plays really kill you. So yeah, to your point, you, that silly football, you know, you never know which way it's going to bounce. And the fact that it just decided the way it randomly, total random, right? Like there's nothing designed in it. Just the randomness of the, the way the ball hits the ground goes out of bounds. And yeah, to your point, um, you know, that first super weird fumble, he's, I mean, it was called a, you know, obviously called a, a, a fumble return the first time. So that it was overturned. It was, he was barely out of bounds and, and it was the correct call. Like there's nothing wrong. Like both, both things were done correctly. The refs nailed it. It was all good. But yeah, we, we, football is like these little moments. And if these moments change, everything changes, but the big, again, the big foundational side of it is, and I think I love your point about, you know, two out of three times you have game winning drives, you know, in the fourth quarter. It's not sustainable to live on the margin all the time. Like you can't always expect and hope for the last minute victory week in and week out. And when you li- when you play that kind of football you're going to have these games where it's like, oh, we fumbled this time. Well, yeah, because that happens. Like, if you keep doing this over and over again versus controlling the football, like, there's a reason why winning football, it's so boring. The world's most boring Seahawks podcast. The reason why controlling football is so important is because, you know, you run the ball, it changes everything, right? It just, it makes your margin for error just so much wider, so much easier. And 
yeah, the Seahawks made it hard on themselves uh, yesterday. And they've done that a few times. Gosh, yep. I mean, <laughs> not much to add to that. I did, to go back to a point from uh, about 30 minutes ago with Lawyer Malloy and Earl Thomas, because this is the end of my little thing about safeties, is this, uh, I, I don't I didn't remember Malloy's play, and it's not to compare Malloy's season to Jamal Adams' season, which is one of the Jamal Adams twenty twenty three one of the all time roller coaster seasons. I mean, there's been back to going back to when he first appeared in the Giants game and had to be taken out after nine snaps. There's just been so many ups and so many downs to it. So not to compare those seasons, but just to say, hey, with young players, they can kind of hit into a different era just very quickly was my, anyway. Yeah, no, glad absolutely. I glad, I'm glad I went back there. That was worth it. <laughs> oh my. Look, this is this kind of a game. I mean, it's it's this kind of a game just to like, I don't know, just we just got to sit in it here a little bit. Um, yeah, well, it, thinking about lawyer puts a smile on my face, so that's nice. It's nice to go down memory lane with lawyer Malloy. He would have been angry in this game. He was an angry player. Like he was a screamer on the sidelines, which frankly, I think this team could use that. It could use a bit more of that veteran, like, guys, what are we doing? Let's go. Like you, you need those kind of catalyst type players. And um, I mean, I thought we were set beast mode was at this game. He was like giving our running backs a pep talk before the game. I thought this game was in the books. The second I saw beast mode on the sidelines, I was like, we can't lose. And Walker had a great game. He had, he had that's my favorite game from Walker all year, but no time to talk about the offense. I thought everybody on the offense had a great DK a hundred yard game. I'm only mentioning it right now. And we're going to, Ah, boy. Skill, yeah, skill positions are not the problem with this team, right? Like, I think we can agree on that. Like, this Seahawks yeah. team has plenty of skill at the skill positions. Quarterback, fine. Like, Geno played a fine game. Um, I think he uh, played an excellent game. I think it's better than that. I, I, I love Geno's game. Yeah, uh, Geno, good, great, excellent. Um, wide receivers, great. I mean, it, we're seeing Jackson Smith and Jigba continue to grow up in front of our eyes um dk had a great game tyler had a, a quiet game but they spread the ball around the tight ends you must have loved seeing your tight ends be so involved i mean they were picking it apart um there were some beautiful plays to the tight ends george uh uh, uh noah fant was getting uh, noah fant yeah noah fant was getting in there and i was gonna say george fant our he was our tackle for a while um noah was getting in there doing his thing colby was doing his thing like Great things from the tight ends, like taking advantage of weak safety play. Like <laughs> there are so many cool things on on offense in that way. And then it just comes down to, again, winning in the trenches, which is the least sexy part of football. Getting those big war daddies that can move people. And that's how you win. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> sure is. Well, I heard Snapping to Attention was uh, sponsoring a segment on the podcast this week. And so I'm I'm standing up, I'm saluting, I'm at attention, and I'm not sure what segment they're sponsoring. Maybe um, you know. Yeah, they're, they're sponsoring our Snap Count segment. Um, oh, which that is, makes sense. It's a new segment we've never done before. Um, so I'm going to run through these fairly quickly. There's a couple of interesting ones. Bradford, 100%, which makes sense with injuries. JSN, 67%. Charbonnet 57. Um, here's a new name that we haven't seen because um Evan Brown had to go out. Um Olu Olu Timmy. 
um, 51%. Um, it'll be interesting to kind of hear how he did. It's difficult to watch, um, you know, center play and, and, and break that all down. He obviously had the one missed snap, um, which was a bummer, you know, um, yeah, that wasn't was... a big fan of Waldron waiting until the backup center came in to break out the trick. play. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about doing that with the backup center. That, that seems like a dumb thing to do. Um, frankly, um, I, I love the play. Like, I think the play looked really cool and interesting. Um, and it looked like Walker was going to have a great opportunity there, but yeah, that seemed like an odd, an odd time to do it. Um, Bobo 10%. Here's another interesting number. And I, I'm assuming this is just because he actually wasn't 100% healthy. Um, Witherspoon spoon played 49% of the snaps. That's obviously not what we want. Um, I, I, it seemed to me like he was mostly playing nickel in this game. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but it seemed like he was mostly kind of doing that inside leverage. Um, so I just wonder if that's indicative of look, was he, well enough to play a little bit? Yes. Was he well enough to play 100%? No. That might also like very easily explain why this was a bit of a quiet spoon game, right? Like I, you know, I I don't think he's actually 100% healthy yet. Um, Derek Hall, 36%. Um, Cam Young, 10%, which plays into the last numbers. We already brought it up, but I, I think of all the snap count numbers, this is the most damning and sad and frustrating snap count numbers, which is we already mentioned it, Reed, Mafe, Williams, all 90% of the snaps. And again, that's out of 71 plays ran by the Steelers. So, I mean, that's um, really, really big. And then Draymond Jones, even he, I, we usually see him around 56 to 60% of the snaps week in and week out. He was at 76% of the snaps, which is typically what we see <laughs> Reed, Mafe, and Williams at. So the fact that obviously, you know, Young playing 10%, you know, Mario Edwards was out in this game. So that means that these guys all had to play more. Um, we had another nose tackle in that we brought up from the practice squad who played about 10% as well. Um, so the fact that our, our depth on the defensive line, I think, was very challenged. This is, I mean, I guess, you know, long story short, of all the games to give them 71 plays, this is like worst case scenario because we were dinged up a bit on the defensive line, but to see those three guys have to play 90% is just, it, I mean, it's not winning football. You can't ask a 300 pound man to be out there and play that much. It's just, I don't even think like, I think the laws of physics basically just say this won't work. You're right. The laws of football and the laws of physics. And it, it makes me, I'm sitting here wondering if, like, hey, it's tough on the day. You can't bring 100% of your juice in the fourth quarter. But I, I am wondering if it's like, hey, that makes the whole week of recovery that much harder as well. I, I hope these guys are, are good to go and, and refreshed by next Sunday. But that, that's probably a big reason you don't see D-linemen playing that many snaps. I mean, you, 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 it's hard to do that. It's not winning football to do that in one week. And then to try to do that week on week uh, is can't be winning football. It definitely isn't. So hopefully um, things we'll see how things go in the first quarter uh, against the Cardinals next week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny. It's, it's funny to bring this to like a physics conversation, but like energy is finite, right? And you only have so much of it. And so the fact that to your point, all of these massive men now have to recover. They have to like replenish their energy. They have to, 
you know, heal up their nicks and bruises and, you know, muscle strains, whatever it is to be able to play against Arizona next week, there is a cumulative, you know, effect on that on someone's body. And you only have so much energy. You only have, you know, so much output that one can, can put out there. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And, you know, I think it also goes to show and, you know, maybe a bit of a shout out here to Mario Edwards. You know, he's he has been kind of a quiet contributor for this defensive line. He's been a good depth piece on this defensive line and not having him, I think, was was costly for us. I think he, he was another one of those guys like imagine Mario Edwards takes 30 percent of the snaps, you know, that that's a big deal like that gives those other guys a lot of extra breathing room. And I mean, and I guess, you know, the bummer of bummers, this could have been the game where Cam Young really stepped up and said, hey, these guys need to rest. Like, I can handle this. I can, like, hold up for 20 or 30 percent. And the fact that they only trusted him for 10 percent is, yeah, it's, it's a bummer. It's a bummer. Yeah, great. We haven't talked about Mario Edwards very much. I think he is. He tends to be at about 30 percent in each game. And, yeah, that does make a huge difference for the rest of of how everybody's playing and, and getting rested. Have you done any mining lately? I did wow. do some mining. I did my mining ahead of time, and I found uh, on the ground in the middle of the cave a beautiful, shiny peat nugget. Uh, when he was talking with Steve Rabel last Friday, bit of a continuation <laughs> of our Titans discussion about, hey, you're bringing in Zach Charbonnet, cold off the bench on this goal, these goal line plays at the very end of the game. So Steve and Pete were talking about how Pete tends, it seems like he practices the two-minute drill live in practice way more than other NFL teams, which is a little surprising to me because a good percentage of your games and thus a good percentage of your season do end up on the two-minute drill. So I appreciate that Pete does this. And he mentioned something that I had never thought of, which is that he trains his players because they do the two-minute drill live. There's really no point to doing it unless you're doing it at max speed. And a big coaching point is that the ball carrier or the receiver with the ball at the end of the play, he wants them to go back and run and literally hand it to the official. Do not shovel or toss the ball to the official because his point is, hey, this official is not paid to catch passes. He's a guy out there, and if he's fumbling around with his ball, that's a couple seconds off the clock. And I had just never thought of that, and there were a couple hurry-up scenarios in this game, and sure enough, every Hawk is running and literally handing it, making sure it is handed to the official. And it it just made me think of, there might just be too many details in football to ever get to them all. We've talked a lot about about these guys. They're using just about every humanly possible hour in the week to work on football. They're doing all this stuff. And it's like, all right, so Pete has drilled this thing about handing the ball off to the officials. Such a, it's like a small detail and a huge detail at the same time. It's like, so you're looking at Charbonnet coming in, cold off the bench. It's like, yeah, maybe there's just... T- Maybe there's just too many details to ever fully track them all. And if you're like me and you're going like, well, hey, Charbonnet doesn't have uh, that many touchdowns on runs inside the 10. It's like, well, yeah, but then there's a whole like strength and conditioning aspect of getting Charbonnet ready for the game that and all your players ready for the game that the, the strength and conditioning you also can't really see from the outside. It just made me think that 
there's a lot going on. As even though you're right, it's a simple game. You gotta have, have the guys stop things in the trenches. It also at times does seem infinitely complex. There's details. Yeah. No, I it's funny. I've actually heard that Pete like will yell at players in practice if he ha- if they hand it to the center. Like if you run the football in and you hand it to the center, that's also a violation because what's the center have to do? Hand it to the ref. Like it, it has to get to the ref. So just hand it to the guy. Like give it to the source. Let him put it down. Um, yeah, it's really. I, I I've think heard that before, but just the literally like yeah, when you're handing it to the ref, like literally hand it to the ref. Do like. Go the extra three, four yards all the way up to the guy. Don't just shovel it off. And it was kind of amazing to see that. It just felt awesome to see it like happening or like in this game. Like, yep, sure enough, there we go. They're they're handing it off. Hand it off, hand it off. Yeah, no, it's a it's a fun detail. Um, it's a really fun detail because to your point, there there are so many details that go into the prep for the week, whether that's the goal line stuff, whether that is I mean, just the precise route running, whether that, you know, two minute, um, it's, we were talking last night, we had some folks over and we were talking about offensive versus defensive line play. And like the analogy was the, the, a lot of people that were, that we were hanging out with had like a dancing background. And so it was like, what's the analogy? What's an offensive lineman as a dancer versus a defensive lineman. And the takeaway was that like offensive linemen are like, it's like ballet, um, to the level of detail and like intricate movement that they have to do and defensive line is kind of like hip-hop dancing where it's like there there is like a lot of intricate moves but it's kind of two different worlds and like to be a great defensive lineman is different than to be a great um offensive lineman even though they're both awesome right and even though both are great dance forms um my my sister-in-law who was over last night she um loves so you think you can dance like that's like one of her favorite shows and has been for years and she brought the point is like and so i think you can dance has always like proven that people that come with a hip-hop background like never win like they when it comes time for them to like now we have to do this ballet thing it's like they're like uh i can't dance ballet but when you ask a ballerina to like dance hip-hop it's like oh okay i can learn that like i can figure that out like i i can I can muddle through these moves a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, just to the point of like the detail that's at every level of this game from the offense to the defensive line, um, you know, that in of itself is just a dance. I remember, oh man, who was it? Was it Atari Rubin? Was it, no, it was Snacks Harrison was talking about like, it's like just two dancing bears on the defensive line fighting each other. He was going up against, um, Oh, the Detroit, uh, a Detroit defensive tackle. And I'm totally blanking on his name, but like just two massive men. He was like, yeah, just two dancing bears. Just just going after each other. Three hundred and thirty pounds each. Um, My Pete Nugget is is from the press conference yesterday. And it's not much of a nugget. I'll admit Pete was not giving really any nuggets. This is similar kind of to week one in some ways, I guess. If I'm looking at my Pete Nuggets, I'm just listening to his countenance. I'm just listening to the emotion in Pete's voice. And unfortunately, Pete had no answers yesterday, like during the press conference. All all he said, if, if anyone wants to know what Pete said in his press conference yesterday, it was simply this. Yeah, we couldn't tackle. 
and I need to look at the film and understand what happened. He's you know, we felt like we had a great game plan coming in and we just couldn't do it. Um, unfortunately, Pete again kind of had that. He was demoralized the same way that we were demoralized. And he had the same like, what the heck are we doing? Like, what's going on? Um, which is always hard to hear from Pete because he's such an upbeat guy. When when he's demoralized, we're all demoralized, right? So um, not much of a Pete nugget, unfortunately. <laughs> Just he sounded devastated. And um, let's move on, Miles. It's time. Hey, what what do the Seahawks have to do? They have to rinse this loss off of them and move on to next week. We got to move on. Let's stop talking about this damn game. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about, let's talk about um, other people's problems. You know what, Miles, when, when you're having problems, sometimes it's nice to look at someone else's problems and be like, you know what? Life isn't so bad. You know what? This house isn't so bad. You know what? My group, Look, I'm looking at my lawn right now. It's not nearly as bad as that guy's lawn over there. I, my lawn's greener. Sometimes it's a little cathartic to look at other people's problems. Are you familiar with a team called the Denver Broncos? I have heard of them. Yes. And yes. And, uh, you know, it's funny. It's a team in another conference that has no impact on the Seahawks season. Uh, our our trade business has has been completed. There's no draft pick shenanigans, and yet it it feels impossible. It feels like the Broncos season is an essential part of the Seahawks season. There's so the emotions, the relationships are so deeply entangled that you can't you can't really talk about the Seahawks without also talking about the Broncos, who had. From a football business perspective, one of the messier weeks in recent history. I'll say this. One of probably the messiest week in week 17 for a team that was alive for the playoffs that you could possibly remember. I mean, Hmm. (laughs) like uh, the Panthers are not having a great week. They were eliminated a long time ago, but Broncos were alive for the playoffs entering this week. And boy, did they make a mess of things. I do want to give an update. I had promised a sincere apology uh, as requested by Broncos wide receiver Cortland Sutton. I was going to apologize for looking at Russell Wilson's box score stat lines with a negative spirit. If and only if the Broncos finished two wins better than the Seahawks, I thought that was an appropriate margin given the amount of draft picks that the Broncos that uh, were given to the Seahawks in the Russell Wilson trade. Both teams are at eight and eight. Uh, and it was actually clinched last week for me. The Broncos were not going to finish two games better than the Seahawks. Um, but complicating, so I'm safe there. But what is a complicating factor is on Sunday, Russell Wilson was healthy. This is the first time. This is the first time this happened. Russell, probably in his whole life, actually. Probably. Yeah, probably. Uh, definitely in the NFL. Uh, Russell Wilson was completely healthy. And he was in uniform, and his football team was playing a game, and he did not play in it. It's wild. And boy, was it a roller coaster to get there. Man, it's what a crazy week. I mean, I, I in fact, last week, obviously, traveling for Christmas, and I'm, I'm looking on Twitter and looking on ESPN and seeing these, you know, reports coming down that, you know, Russell Wilson's likely to be benched the last two weeks of the season. Um, for financial reasons, primarily. Um, here, here's my first question, and there's no way you can answer this. 
But this is what I'm most curious about in, in what's transpired this year with Russell. When they hired Sean Payton, when that when that move was made, before they signed, before they signed with Sean, the contract's in front of everybody, but we haven't signed anything yet. Sean, we have just a couple of questions left. What are your thoughts on Russell Wilson? You know, is is he a part of your future? I would love to know. We'll never know, I suppose. Maybe we will someday. We probably won't care by the time we'll know. But <laughs> was Russell ever a part of Sean Payton's plans? Like, it, it, because it's such a crazy thing. I was just thinking about, like, if I went to my boss and if I said, okay, you, you just hired me. You just hired me. Last year, before I was here, you dedicated hundreds of millions of dollars to this asset, to this thing, to this thing that we think is going to help the company. That was a massive mistake. You made a massive mistake. The only way through this is to pay me an insane amount of money. And then we're just going to throw away this, this really, really expensive asset that you have invested in. Like, yeah, let's imagine it's like a supercomputer. Yeah, that they've spent two hundred, like not a person, but like a supercomputer. Yeah. It's like my yes, hire me, and my solution is to throw this supercomputer in the garbage and start from scratch. It's like such a crazy thing, and I just wonder it, the way it's been playing out this whole time, the way that Sean has like basically thrown Russell under under the bus from from day one. It feels as though. He was never a part of their plans. And so I would just love to know that like for sure. Like at the very beginning of this, when Sean Payton started, was he like, yeah, that's not going to work for me. Like this guy's not the guy. Sorry. Like we're just going to have to work through this season. But like he's not in my long term plans because it's just it's such a bizarre thing um, to in this short of time have to you know, go back on all this and, and all the dead money they're going to end up wasting if they if they do indeed end up cutting him, which, you know, it seems for sure at this point. Um, I, my gut tells me that Russell was never part of Sean's plans. Well, I mean, what, what's your thoughts on that? Like, do you think that Sean ever saw a future with Russell or do you think this was always going to happen? Like it was it was known from the beginning. It's such a great question. And it seemed like, it seemed like, all right, so Sean Payton and Russell Wilson aren't going to be friends, it seems, that Sean Payton was kind of irritated by Russell's, you know, um, kind of eternal political campaign type of ways. But that's okay. You, the, the head coach and the quarterback are probably people in different generations. They do not need to be friends. What I start, I went, I went on a whole journey with this throughout this week with with a bunch of stages. <laughs> I was, and because at first it's like, yeah, Broncos have to cut him. He's making this huge salary and he's not performing at that level. And it is true that Wilson is underperforming his large salary number, but the Broncos have to have a starting quarterback in twenty twenty four. So that's what I want to know. You, like, it's not enough to say. This quarterback's bad. We need to move on. You, you, do, you do have games coming up in September 2024. You're going to be picking in the middle of the first round. You don't, you have this, like, you do need a name. And ideally, a name that where it's reasonable to expect that they will win more games than Russell Wilson will. Maybe Jarrett Stidham is the guy. 
But if you look at the resumes, it's like, well, okay. Uh, Russell Wilson's got a, about a decade, you know, like there's just a few hundred more wins, you know, on Russell Wilson's resume. So what ultimately offended me was the Broncos were alive for the playoffs heading into this. Yep. And so it's like, okay, if you think Stidham is the better quarterback, I think you need to make that move earlier. And maybe it's possible. Maybe Stidham is the better quarterback. But if so, he's been in the building the entire year. There was a time earlier in the year where he could have where he could have done that. Broncos, I think they had about a 6% chance of entering the playoffs, entering this week. That's about the same percent of a chance. The Hawks got the ball with 430 left in this game. and They were trailing 30 to 20. They had about the same percentage chance of winning the ball game. But can you imagine if the Hawks were like, yeah, uh, 4.30 left, down 10 points, probably not going to win that. We're not going to try to take advantage of this 5% chance to win the game. We're going to kneel it out or whatever and punt the ball back. I mean, that would be crazy. And, of course, that's a little muddled now that the Broncos actually did win their game with Jared Stidham. But, you know, I, I you you can't because there's so there's not an obvious option who the Broncos go to with quarterback in 2024. You can't take this opportunity to get into the playoffs for granted. The Broncos have about six or seven losing seasons in a row. So that that's ultimately what offended me of, of this, this feeling that like, yeah, we're going to be like, we're just going to throw away this opportunity to get into the playoffs. I mean, depending on who that quarterback is in 2024, it could be a three or four win season for the Broncos. It's not very obvious. Like they're already spending so much at quarterback. Yeah. Okay. Kirk Cousins is a free agent. Or are you going to spend a total of 70, $80 million between two quarterbacks? So, yeah. Anyway, I like, it's one thing to be frustrated about it, but I, I got very frustrated with, with Sean Payton and the Broncos. of like, well, what's, what's the plan going forward? Like I, 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 you, I really don't see it. And the irony of all of this is that they won, right, on Sunday. So they beat the Chargers, (laughs) which is hilarious. And so, I I mean, I don't know what their current playoff odds are. In fact, maybe we should look this up just really fast. Like what um, uh, Denver's uh, playoff chances. Let's let's just let's just put this really, really quickly here. they're eliminated. Oh, oh, we, they're were, eliminated. Okay, they, we were yeah, okay. They needed they were, some. They needed some help. That's part of it. Help. They were alive, okay. but they needed. They needed well, some other games to go their way, and they didn't. So, uh, so even with the win, they just got eliminated. So I mean, it is okay. Still funny though. Like it's still interesting. I guess like to if we, if I was, and obviously I'm not in Sean Payton's camp. I've been I've been frustrated with him since before the season, but just the way he's behaved. Um, but that aside. If I was in his camp, it 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 is ironic, like the idea if if they win the last two games with Stidham, right? Like if they if they end the season winning the last two games with Jared Stidham, it it kind of you know it it, it hurts the argument a little bit. Um, speaking of the grass is always greener. Just looking at this game that they they defeated the Chargers. Imagine being a Chargers fan. I mean, this is like a team that is just like. To say Oli's mediocre doesn't feel like it does justice. Like it's like, wait, how are the Chargers this bad again? Like this, it it doesn't make any sense. It's unbelievable. Um, and speaking of, I mean, you look at that NFC, that AFC West, right? Like at, at one point, the thought was like that is murderous row. Like the AFC West is stacked. Every team in the AFC West is so good, and now we look at it, it's like. 
Denver, eight and eight. Chargers, I think they have five wins. What you know, the Raiders have like four or five wins. It's just like they have a little more than that, but it's not that much. Yeah. Chiefs underperforming massively. Like it's just kind of hilarious to how quickly I guess life comes at you fast, right? Like just the NFL life comes at you fast. It, you go from this this division is a nightmare. Like the, like they're these are going to be the best teams in the in the league. To like so I, I guess again, good perspective looking at other people's lawns, realizing yeah, some people do have a greener grass but not everybody yeah okay so i had another piece about because i went on another journey with with russell because okay. at first i was feeling very bad for him of like i can't believe his own front office and coaching staff is like cutting his legs out from under him the whole ta- the whole tactics like boy was the whole nfl focused on russell wilson's 2025 injury guaranteed this week i mean and it, it just felt kind of cruel and then and then then my opinion changed because i was like all right, so the Seahawks, as as the Legion of Boom defense kind of filtered away and the Seahawks became a more offensive-focused team, 2018, 2019, 2020, the way the Seahawks worked, it was not Russell Wilson's dream on the field. There, there was a, some level of, of unsatisfaction. And K.J. Wright was talking about how the Seahawks actually fired Brian Schottenheimer as offensive coordinator after a string of winning seasons, you know? So, all right. Russell Wilson wasn't happy with the texture and feel of the playbook. He wasn't being allowed to cook and so forth. It does seem like off the field that the Seahawks are pretty much an ideal NFL franchise. And I recalled watching early in the season a press conference Draymond Jones gave, which, so he's a free agent who had just spent time in Denver. So he's just kind of we got all these players acquired from Denver in the trade, and then this was kind of on the side. Draymond Jones, first four years in Denver, and now signed as a free agent with the Seahawks. And I just remember him saying, like, and this was early in the year before we knew how it was going to go, really. Like, yeah, things are different here. And I think there's a really big contrast. You mentioned it a little bit earlier with how Pete is handling Jamal Adams versus how the Broncos are handling Russell Wilson. Something is happening. With Jamal Adams. We we don't know what. But <laughs> something is happening. And I think Pete and the Seahawks are actually working very hard to make sure that we don't know what. Yep. And I think Pete sees the, the long game, the value in, hey, even if things go bad, because things have gone poorly for Jamal Adams on the field, especially as the year has gone on. But I think Pete and John see the long game, see the value in like, hey, there's going to be dirty laundry here. It's not going to be the public will not know about it. Yeah. Versus this, <laughs> this became so. It was kind of like, all right. So I, I think I think if Russell had to do it all over again, I think he would have reevalu. I think he would have placed different value on. Okay, the playbook isn't exactly how I want it to be, but behind the the criticism of Pete was that he protected Russ. Too much, you know? Yeah. You're, you're definitely not going to, clearly you're not going to get that from every NFL coach. So it's kind of like, and and I do think the, it feels like the way the Broncos handled this, it felt underhanded with trying to manipulate that injury guarantee. But it's like, hey, that, you, ev- not every business works as well as the Seahawks. Veteran players don't return to other teams like they do with the Seahawks for second or third tenures, you know? And so it's like, well, I, it, you, he kind of got what he wanted because what he wanted was 
not the Seahawks. And that has some good elements and some bad elements as well. Yeah. I don't no. know if you agree with any of that, but that, oh. that was my journey with the Russell element of it. I think it's a beautiful point to bring up to uh, to compare Russell and Jamal, right? Because, yeah, they are two guys that have underperformed their contract. Um, there are two guys that, like, clearly, I, I'm sure Pete Carroll does not like what, what Jamal did on Instagram um, and, and that whole kerfuffle. Um, clearly, uh, Sean Payton doesn't like the way that Russell Wilson, you know, kind of does stuff socially and is, you know, quote unquote, always kissing babies and, you know, kind of being out there all the time. And so just this idea that I think it's it's such a beautiful example of two different ways to handle a problem and having a very emotional, visceral reaction. Right. Which which I think ultimately is my biggest problem with Sean Payton. He doesn't seem to be a man in control. He seems to be a man out of control of his emotions. and. Like, although Pete is kind of labeled as this, you know, rah, rah guy who you would imagine he's the more emotional, right? You know, he's, he's this new school kind of coach that, you know, players love and all that kind of stuff and maybe less, less substance and and more style. The idea that like, in reality, Pete is this much more mature man. I'll just say that, like, I think that's obvious that like, is willing to put his emotions aside and John Schneider as well and say like, no, like we're going to protect the team. Like that literally is the number one rule of the Seahawks. Like rule number one is protect the team and that he preaches that it's a, you bring up such a cool point miles because he preaches that to his players. The number one rule is protect the team. And if he's going to preach that to his players, the only way they will ever listen to that rule is if he also does it. And so the fact that he has to do it too, he has to protect the team. And so he's not going to um, air out their dirty laundry either. And he's he's going to be a team player. And the long game of that has to be huge. I mean, NFL players would be real idiots if they weren't watching that and being like, okay, yeah, there's different ways that front offices act and there's different ways coaches act. One way has my back and isn't going to air my my grievances or my issues. And one way is going to throw me under the bus at almost every opportunity and scream in my face on the sidelines and then make me suit up as the third string quarterback. Like, all right. Yeah, there, there's two different ways to like run a franchise. Protect the team is I, I think it's a what you said kind of comes back to that core tenet of Seahawks football. Um and obviously, that's a reason why players respect him. That's a reason why Marshawn Lynch, one of the most eccentric humans probably on planet Earth, is showing up at the Seahawks game yesterday. And like, there's a video of him and Pete talking for a long time. And they both have massive smiles on their faces and they're hugging each other. Like, just think about that world. Like, this 70-year-old coach, this 70-year-old white man is hanging out with this 30-year-old black man and that have completely different like backgrounds and all of that and they love each other and they're hugging each other and like they're very different humans yet they respect each other right like there's a there's a protection there's a love there's a respect so i mean maybe not a better example than that like marshawn weird dude to quote unquote manage right i don't think anyone does and yet pete has obviously done that in a way that 
they can still be friends and they can still enjoy each other's company. Um, yeah, I, I love that. Just, I guess, kudos, man. Like that's a great, um, dichotomy, I guess. Like that's a great thing to compare. Oh man. Anyway, that's the Broncos who I don't even, I didn't even watch the game. One second of that, <laughs> their win. It was all kind of, the game was so secondary to what was happening with the Broncos this week. What a, uh, yeah, gotta love Pete. That's the kind of, yeah. Jeez. Now, the most Pete Carroll game. story ever, and I don't think this will happen. I'm sure it won't. But the most Pete Carroll thing ever would be Russell gets cut and then just comes back to the Seahawks. Like, that would be the most. And like, and that Pete is just like, oh, no, he's one of the best quarterbacks of all time. What are you talking about? Of course we want him. He's the best. And like, just here we go. <laughs> like, round two. And like, it's not going to happen, but you could almost see it happen. Well, okay, I feel very confident that um, Russell will be the Steelers. Coincidentally, I do think he will be the Steelers starting quarterback next year, and they'll go 9-8 and eight and get into the playoffs and lose in the first round. I want to get that prediction out there. I, I feel very confident that, that that's what's going to happen. I can see that. I think it'll be more I – think, I think Wilson and Tomlin feel like guys who could be on the same page, though. So it'll be like a pleasant – it'll be like an inspiring 9-8, and eight, you know? Yeah, no, I I can see that. I mean, I could see you could absolutely see a world where Russell says, "I need to get back to play action. I need to get back to what I do best. I need to get back to big plays and running the football and great defense. And and I need to get back to again talk about a mature head coach that you can respect, Mike Tomlin. Like I I have a ton of respect for Mike Tomlin. He he seems like one of those guys that is actually like. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I guess I don't really, I don't know him. So it's hard to be like, he's a great guy, but I mean, he's been in the league for a long time doing it for a long time. And it seems as though he puts players, um, health and, um, and, and puts people ahead of, you know, even necessarily wins. I, I did you, did I ever tell you, I, I watched an interview with Tomlin and McVeigh and, um, Oh, I'm I'm blanking on his name right now. He was the head coach for the Falcons for a few years, or for the Buccaneers. Um, Bruce Arians? No, uh, Raheem, Raheem Morris. Yes, Raheem Morris. Thank you. Well done. Um, and they were having this conversation, and they were just talking about like player safety and and like I don't know. It, it was a good conversation because you just these three dudes that obviously love each other and are good friends and talking football, but also talking people and. Um, he has a good record of that sort of thing. So I, I think that that could be a smart fit. It's funny. I, I was texting with some people and they were like, where's Russell going to land? And one guy was like, yeah, I don't think he ever starts the NFL again. And I was just like, dude, like, there's a lot of bad teams in the NFL. Like there are plenty of places. Derek Carr got a job like and got paid a lot by the Saints. Like there are plenty of places that could use Russell Wilson's services next year. Um I mean, great time to be Russell's friend because he's going to make like $34 million for doing nothing. Like $34 million bucks is now his like baseline of money in 2024. <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, is it time? We, we've left it for the last couple weeks. Is it time to go back a few decades for the, the very last? I've completed my book. Oh, good. When, when Pride Still Mattered by David Baroness about Vince Lombardi. I want to talk about the last few years of Lombardi's life because uh, this is kind of after the glory. Uh, so basically, 
1967, he wins the NFL championship for the third straight year and the second, then the second Super Bowl after that. And as these playoff games are happening, he kind of knows that he's going to resign as the head coach of the Packers. He's kind of burned it from both ends. It's kind of like the best job in the world for him, and he can't keep on doing it because there's just like too much turmoil inside. He spends 1968 uh, as the Packers general manager. So it's kind of a, it doesn't happen very often in the NFL anymore, but he goes from just head, or he was doing both to just general manager. And the book makes it seem that he's like retired or unemployed or just like very bored. I think it was, I don't think that's an issue John Snyder has very often. I think it was different then. I think there were about 38 roster spots at that point in time. And I think players just moved around a lot less. So I guess there was less to do. It still seems like a full-time job to me, but it just made it seem like he was very bored and kind of tinkering and uninspired. And um, this is really when he kind of, he spends a lot of his time doing like speeches to businessmen. And so that's, I think that's where we kind of get the connection of like Lombardi as like an inspirational figure. Cause he kind of had this, he's, I mean, it was kind of a rare thing for a football coach to do at, at that time. Um, then going into the 1969 season, he signs a deal to become the coach and general manager, uh, for Washington, their old name. And, uh, this would be like Bill Belichick jumping to the Panthers or or the Chargers right now. At that, the Washington hadn't had a winning season in fourteen years. Wow! And so, so he he knows he just can't jump back in as the coach of the Packers, and so it's like, okay, new chapter. I'm going to start something from scratch. And uh, what I thought was great, and this this connects with Pete these days. Somebody asked him uh, at like his introductory press conference, like, what about you're going to this team that's been terrible for so long. What about your reputation? And uh, Lombardi says, quote, reputation, schmeputation. There's something about these football coaches. They, they don't hold it as preciously as we might from the outside about what about your legacy. They just, they just need to be doing um, a lot more than, than the average person. So he, he really didn't care about it. So he has this one year in Washington. They do have their first winning season. They go like, nine and seven or whatever that was for 14 games. And then really tragically, as, as the spring rolls into the 1970 season, he gets colon cancer hmm. and um, he had kind of been ignoring some signs here and there for a couple of years, but it's really a swift decline. And he, he passes away right as that next season starts. He's only 57 years old. And it was, I mean, it's like December, 1969, they're winning they're, they're le- he's leading his team to a winning season in the NFL as coach and GM. And in that June, he checks into the hospital and, and he ends up passing away a few months later. So the Super Bowl trophy is renamed the Lombardi Trophy almost instantly. And that's kind of how it happens. And so there's this his life has a very interesting shape where he passes away so suddenly at such a young age. But up until that 57... But up until he's 46, he really felt behind when he signed on as the coach of the Packers at 46, he felt behind the curve the entire time in hmm. his life because he kept on being an assistant here and there and he never got he never had a head coaching role until he was 46 with the Packers and it felt like something that always eluded him. So he felt very behind for most of his life. 
and he has this very brief moment in the sun, and then he's like starting this next chapter, and then he passes away. And what what got me was so he was he was a football player in Division One in the thirties, and after he graduated, he was injured a lot, so he did, he didn't play that much. He would play, but he he had all these injuries. After he is done with his football playing career, he spends two years pretty much lost. His dad is a butcher. He works at his dad's butcher shop. He doesn't like it. He does this. He does that. He 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 has no direction. And it's not until one of his old teammates calls him. His old teammate had gotten hired as a football coach for this 400-student private high school. Small. <laughs> and he's just calling old teammates looking for an assistant. Like, will you be my assistant? Will you be my assistant? And he like gets to Lombardi on the list, who doesn't really have much going on. And that's how it gets started. And he's like a high school teacher for some of those years. And so, and then he just kept building and building until he was 46. And I think that inspired me because with with star athletes, they're kind of given, I mean, obviously there's a lot of effort, but you kind of have to be given a certain physique, you know? Yeah. But with coaches, you don't. So coaches, there's no number one prospect for coaches, you know? And maybe there is with like Kyle Shanahan and his dad being in the NFL, but there's just, you, you have to have a certain type of personality and drive and something. And somehow I do think everybody who can be a great football coach, like finds their way into doing it. But it just inspired me of like, it really came out of nowhere. He wouldn't yeah. have said, I want to be a great football coach until he got into it. And then he just kind of found something he could put all his energy into. And yeah, it's, it's kind of, odd how I I kind of vaguely knew he coached another team other than the Packers but it was like national all those things were national news he's moving to Washington and then his health is declining and he passes away I mean it would be wild to have you know can you imagine if Belichick just like passed away I mean it's, it would be it's wild like to have one of these great coaches just have a health issue like that and they're just they just go to the hospital and they they don't get out well, you know, it's funny you mentioned, well, first of all, it, I had no idea he passed away at 57. That's, that is wild. And I, I have to say something that I know is going to sound real dumb. Um, but it's just, it's the truth of like where my mind went. All of the video of Lombardi, like he looks like an older gentleman. And so the idea that like all of that is before he was 57 is just kind of crazy. I've always I've always thought of him as much older, like while he was with the Packers. So like that's just my my first, you know, I don't know, get that out of my system. It It is such an inspiring story. And I, I you know me, I can't help but to internalize these things personally. Right. And like, what's that mean for you and I in our careers? And what's that mean in, in just the way that, you know, I feel like humans now we try to plan so much of our lives right and so much of our culture as americans even is about like okay what's your 10-year plan what's your five-year plan and the idea of like these these folks that are are big figures in the world in life whatever like that's just not how life always works you know and in like it's not always yeah well you know lombardi went to this school and he got this education and then he was under this head coach and this head coach and he became the ultimate coach and then he got his opportunity and you know here we go he's boy genius he had a a, a little bit of a rocky path i think you and i were talking about mike mcdaniels and how he has a, a very similar trajectory into the nfl where at one point he was like i screwed it up like i 
I won't be in the NFL. Like I've screwed this up because he was drinking too much and, you know, was having an issue there. And the fact that, you know, it's, it's great to hear these stories of people that like, it wasn't the perfect Hollywood ending or Hollywood beginning for that matter, you know, and yet they persevered and they just kind of lived their lives and, you know, it worked out, you know, but it, we're not in such control, I guess, is what I hear in that story. Yeah. And I mean, it may, there's also moments I'm thinking specifically of Bill Walsh and Mike Holmgren, other yeah. Super Bowl winning coaches where Mike Holmgren, they, another high school teacher. Yeah. Yeah. High school and, and just being at very low levels and being a little bit behind other people and moments where it was like, I don't know if I'm there. They both hit a fork in the road where it was like, I don't even know if I'm going to be in coaching at all, you know? So to actually be like, I think in their early thirties for both of them, they kind of hit that fork to be at that fork. And then to end up winning the Super Bowl. I mean, that is so crazy. I like, so yes, these coaches come from somewhere and, you know, Pete, who would have thought uh, again, playing safety at the university of Pacific in the late sixties, early seventies, there's only so many people that have won a Super Bowl as a coach. You never, uh, to, I wonder what, you know, it'd be so awesome to travel back in time to that University of Pacific locker room and be like, you know, Pete, he's going to win the Super Bowl. You know, like there's 35 or whatever coaches who have ever done it, and uh, he's going to be one of them. Yeah, at one point he will be a seminal feature in the annals of all of football, right? College and and professional. Yeah. well, that's great, man. That, I I really like this segment. I think it's fun to um, to to see the roots of where this game started and to get some of this history and something as to your point. I mean, I I had no idea he passed away that early, and I also had no idea he was ever with um, the Commanders or with the with the, with with Washington with the team from Washington. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think I I think I had known that, but it. It's, so it sounded like like Nixon was being inaugurated at the same time, and it was like uh, Lombardi was the bigger news story of like there's two people coming into town, a new president, Vince Lombardi, and everybody kind of cared more about him. <laughs> and a new football coach. That's a great American story. But you give me like the football coach, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, that's it's incredible. I um, okay, so listen. This might be Back our to longest. This decade. Back to this decade. This might be our longest podcast, which I love. Um, because we had plenty to say, even on a demoralizing victory. So I think that that speaks to our friendship more than anything. Um, and us always competing. Um, we got a, a big game next week, the last game of the season versus the Cardinals. Cardinals had a great performance, came out of nowhere, it seems, and defeated the Eagles. The Eagles seem to be in a tailspin. I mean, it, that that just seems to be a team that started so hot and is now looking for answers, which again is another good example of teams got problems all over the league. You know, the the Seahawks got problems. Other people got problems too. Um, How do you feel about this Cardinals game though? As we, as we go into it, Kyler Murray looking to do his thing. What do you think about those Cardinals, those dirty birds in Arizona? Oh man, a lot of birds fighting in the air right now. Um, so not only is this game important, but also, as we mentioned earlier, the Bears do need to defeat the Packers. The The Seahawks need to beat the Cardinals, and the Bears do need to defeat the Packers in order for the Seahawks to be in the playoffs. 
both of those games do kick off at the same time at 1.30 Pacific. So there's a little bit of score. I don't even know. I don't, I don't know about this, if scoreboard watching is important. But anyway, that's the scenario. I'm glad there's not 12 permutations on it. Um, You're very simple. It would, be, it would be funny if one of those ended in a tie, and then it's like, oh, no, what what happens Ooh, now? What do we do now? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the Cardinals have no problem playing spoiler. They've, they've had to be, be spoiler all year. And I, I think it's the same situation as the Steelers game. You know, the Cardinals and the Steelers aren't very similar teams, but... I think if the Seahawks really bring an edge and a desire to to win, they're gonna they have it in the bag. And if they don't, like they did against the Steelers, they'll lose it. I mean, no problem. Like the like, you know, you have to bring your A game even against the Cardinals, no matter what the record looks like. They only have four wins on the year, but yeah, I, if if the Hawks have that edge inside them and and really want to get it, I I think they'll win the game. And and yeah, unfortunately, they they. That might not even get them into the playoffs. It's it's not in crazy. their control completely. Crazy, absolutely crazy. Um, I am I'm actually surprised our odds are at thirty percent. I'd like to understand how that works because it feels much slimmer than that to me. Like thinking about, I can see us winning. Seeing that also, uh, you know, getting a Bears victory seems seems a little slim. But you know, hey, I'll be a Justin Fields fan for a week. Yeah, I think that I think that might be because. From what I understand, I haven't been watching the Packers that closely, but from what I understand, their defense has had a lot of issues lately, and they looked pretty good against the Vikings because the Vikings were starting their like fourth quarterback of the year last okay. night, so they won that game pretty handily. But uh, there, I do. It's I think it is pretty close to a fifty-fifty game between the the Packers and the Bears. Uh, just Here we go. Given the Packers, and that could be a shootout. Speaking of which, I was very wrong about uh, this one being. <laughs> Remember my prediction that the Hawks would beat the Steelers eleven to six. Yes, it was not. Uh, a, I just I just remembered that one. Uh, nailed it. Yeah, it um, was not a muddy game whatsoever, like we both thought it would be. Uh, it's, it's actually the opposite of a muddy game. Really, it's kind of funny thinking of that projection because yeah, now thinking back to last week, there were a lot of explosive plays in this game. On both, like both teams had tons of explosive plays. Um, well, there's a lot of long, productive drives. There were very few possessions total, and it was like a, a, a huge percentage of them ended in scores. That's right. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, we well, yeah, we're bad at predicting. Apparently, what do you think? What do you any? What do you think is going to happen? Um, I, yeah, I, I, I like your point. I and I think it's perfect. This is like a desire game, and like, are we going to come ready to to play and and bring our big boy, big boy pants? Um, you know, I do think Jordan Brooks is a big deal. You know, we talk about stopping the run, right? Um, Jordan Brooks and Mario Edwards, if they both can come back, I think that does help quite a bit, frankly. Um, Devin Witherspoon, healthier, I think that does help. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a, you know, what? It's kind of a come to Jesus kind of game, right? It's a, like, all right, here we go. We're We're going to get this done or not. I will say that this is a Pete Carroll type game. It seems like a game that he'll be able to inspire the troops. Um, and I mean, I'm sure we'll be favored. We should win this game. Um, and you're making me feel a little better that um, if it's more of a 50, 50 proposition with the Bears, So we'll, we'll, we'll see. I don't know what this team does in the playoffs. Like, I think we, we know this team clearly has like some flaws. Like it just, you know, this is not, this is not an all timer Seahawks team. It'd be fun to get in the playoffs, and I hope we do. Um, but you know, expectations—they're getting a little shaky over here. So, just looking for a, a, a quality game. 
what's what do I think is going to happen? I think we'll win. I'll I, I think I'll always say that. I think this team always has a chance to win. Oh man, I don't know. Maybe this is a, just a massive Geno Smith game. Maybe this is like Geno's swan song, and it's like four touchdowns. How about that, Geno Smith? Four touchdowns. That's that's my prediction. That'd be beautiful. It is funny if the Seahawks do win this, which which I do think is more likely than not. But I I not, like I would I would have said the same thing about the Steelers. I think that's why Pete is so deflated. It's like yeah. we're not bringing the edge here, you know, mentally. Um, oh, brother! I just completely forgot what I was going to say. Well. <laughs> The Seahawks forgot how to stop the run. So, I mean, I think it's the least of our problems. Oh, oh! if the Hawks do get the win, then they end up 9-8 and eight on the year, which is what I would have said at week one. But just what – It what was a just ride. quite a winding up and down path to get there of like – What a yeah, ride. Yeah, we ended up 9-8. and eight. Just just like I would have – I would have predicted 9-8, and 10-7 at the start of the year. And it's like, yeah, it could happen, but you're going to feel a lot worse getting there than you ever could have thought. Yeah, you, you never would expect it to come the way it does. Um, a lot of close games, almost all close games, really. I mean, the Ravens game and the the 49ers game are the games that really come to mind as like true blowouts, right? But I mean, a lot of close games throughout the year. Um, a we'll lot of close happens. games, and there was never really any play that was like, I thought we were going to have a moment where it's like, this was like really analyzing a late fourth quarter decision. It's kind of been bizarre. They've been all close, but there's been no like huge decision moments. It's, it's a little bizarre actually that there's been no like, ah, go for it, not go for it. What do we think about this call? Like, it's really weird to be in that many close games and it's just all been kind of like clean, uninterrupted football. Yeah. Uh, you know, what we should do next week is since we'll, we'll have an entire season under our belts, we should, uh, this just came to me like, we should just kind of think about what our favorite play of the season was. I, one is coming to mind. I won't reveal it, but one play in particular oh. is coming to mind right now as my favorite play of the season, I think. So I, just just something to chew on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of good stuff. There was well, a four-yard run in week five that really... It set the tone. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, Miles, let's put a fork in it. Go Hawks. Go Hawks. <laughs>